I've been out of touch since my last episode. I'm guessing some of you can relate to why that is. Budget. Not the financial kind, but the kind where you have to move resources from one place over to where they're needed. In this case, I guess it's easiest to call the resources energy, but one thing this last year has taught me it's that human energy has even more dimension than I give it credit for previously. I bet you get it. Whatever your pluses are. Pluses like, I'm a professional plus a parent, plus a son and sibling, plus a human who at times over the past 10 months has been more filled with uncertainty and stress and fear and constant adjustment than ever before in my life. Sure, lots of joy too. Among many things I reflect a lot on during these days is that both can be true, that you can have good fortune and bright spots in an aspect of your life and utter strife in another, and that the only relationship between those two truths is that they're both part of the experience and are things that take energy. It's easy to make the mistake of thinking you're the fulcrum where those meet. Like, as long as you find a way to pile your joys as high as your struggles, there will be balance. But it really doesn't work that way. Not for me, anyhow. I share all of this because I started the show to learn in the open, to use my questions and experiences as a vehicle to help others on their own journey. In spite of the fact that the subject of the show isn't me, I'm a learner like you, and simply put, learning and creativity are hard when resources are low. But news that excites me is that we have terrific new episodes on deck. It also excites me that I didn't mean the royal we. There's actually a we right now. My new collaborator, Margot, who's interning with me from New York University's Digital Media Design for Learning program. Like in learning, sometimes a collaborator makes all the difference. We're talking in the coming weeks about research practice partnerships with the great Mimi Ito, digging into ethics and machine learning, and Margot and I are working on a series on learning with TikTok with some other exciting collaborators who I can't wait to introduce along the way. Which reminds me, there's a brand new listener survey on facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. I'll also be sharing it over my social media this week. And because there's no incentive as valuable as your time right now, I offer a barter. If you take the survey in the month of February 2021 and let me know you did, I'll give you 30 seconds of airtime to plug anything you want. You'll send me the audio and I'll gladly post as a listener bulletin board at the top of one show between now and June. This episode is something a little different. Like many of you, one of the ways I've been keeping sane over the past months has been nesting, both in my physical world and with respect to my work. I recently have been organizing previous episodes audio and... In so doing, I have some ideas for ways I want to use the process to rekindle ideas that are part of my experience because of this show and continue to motivate and encourage me as I look forward to new hope and exploration and learning that lies ahead. These three segments all come from live episodes. As I've been organizing, I've been thinking about all the ways that I'd like to use my audio to produce what I'm thinking of as kind of mixtapes. Mixtapes were awesome, in part because it was always the author's discretion about what went together. Sometimes that liberty helped build new associations, new ways of thinking, because even if you heard the song a thousand times, it's the first you've heard it sandwiched between two others in a new way. This first track on the mixtape is from an episode called The New Education, titled after Kathy Davidson's book of the same name. It's from January of 2018. This is one of the favorite stories I've ever heard told about assessment in the last 100 years. Have a listen. This is no such thing. 
a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. The first time that, that you and I met, or I met you, I should say, because I was sort of one in a sea of folks <laughs> at Duke, uh, Kathy was giving a lecture to a room about this size, and uh, she was the first person I ever heard make the connection between standardized tests and the meatpacking industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Do, do you want to say so something about Mount that? Holyoke is the Holyoke decides it's going to be a modern university, and it's the first first. Uh, institution of higher education that's going to go from long, discursive, written out um, responses to students' writing that are done in discussion and dialogue with students to modern output-oriented grading, A, B, C, D, and as I just said, F, because everyone was worried about the E's. And when you go back to the archives, there are people worrying about, oh my gosh, we can't give somebody an E, that could be, miscon- that could be misconstrued. The second major organization to adopt A, B, C, D, F grading is the American Meatpackers Association. If you go to the archives of the American Meatpackers Association, what are they arguing about? Not the E or the F, but how could you reduce something as complex as sirloin or chuck to something as simplistic as an A, B, C, D, F grading? So to this day, I, I, I don't know if it's to this day, at least five years ago when we met, when I was doing research on that, I interviewed some meat inspectors. And at least five years ago, and I assume that's still the case, every piece of meat traveled with its metadata. Metadata is a computer science term for all the, the, da- the data behind any kind of an emblem or representation. So if there's an A rating on meat, you can actually find out who the individual meat inspector was who gave that piece of, gra- piece of meat an A, why they did, what kinds of grades they give in general, and what the rationale was. You actually can find that information. Meanwhile, education just chucked that, accepted a very, chucked, ah, that was a pun, <laughs> accepted a very few places, and went to ABCDF grading as if that was science, mm. right? Think about, imagine if you have a two-year-old learning to walk. Oh, you fell. Not so good, C minus today, right? We know that's a disincentive, right? Those are not, that is not how you incentivize learning anywhere else except in formal education. And it's not incentivizing, it's negative, <laughs> brutalizing um, and making, I'm, so you were a great student. I was the opposite. I got kicked out of every school I ever went to. Um, dyslexic, I wasn't diagnosed as dyslexic till I was in my 20s. And my first teaching job, my um, colleague who hired me, the only other woman in my department, said she was taking her six-year-old daughter to be tested because she was very smart but was doing badly and couldn't, couldn't read out loud. And my friend Linda said, why don't you come with us and see what the tests are like? And people used to always say Andrea and I were like, well, Linda knew what was going on. And sure enough, it was a, I always say it's the first test I ever got 100 on. I mean, I was so off the charts dyslexic. And it made sense then why I was this little math geek who loved math but couldn't add and read at a very early age, but still, I still can't read out loud. If I'm giving them a, in my profession, you're supposed to stand there and read to people. I hate, I hate hearing talks that way, and for me, that means practicing maybe 20, 30 times. So it's almost memorized by the time I read it because I still can't really read out loud. So I was the kid who didn't succeed and who, or succeed in a quirky way. Um, and if I'd been a student now, I don't think I would have gone to college. Mm. That, that makes me so sad. So what do you think was different 
Um, I think so we've gotten more outcome-oriented. Yeah. I've got. We've gotten far more test-oriented. Um, we've gotten far more concerned about results and measurable results, not only for students but for teachers. I mean, many many school districts across the country, teachers can be fired or de given demerits or not given in salary increases if their students don't do well on tests. So what do you do then? You make sure the students who do badly on tests fail, get, aren't in school anymore, right? It's an incentive to get rid of students who don't test well in order that your, your average of the students who stay in school can do better on the tests. So you know, it's, a terror, it's a horrible system. We will change it, because I think most people are feeling like it's a, it's a bad system. I know very few kids or parents who say, boy, education today is great. Mm. So, so um, I want to take that and shift a little bit, but I want to summarize before I do, because uh, this is a really important point. You, uh, our point in talking about the meatpacking industry is hopefully, obviously, not that uh, <laughs> there's a correlation between students and meat. Um, but that there isn't. <laughs> yeah. But that there isn't. <laughs> right. And that the assessment strategies and practices for the meatpacking industry uh, actually has more dimension, uh, more layers to it. Uh, we look more critically at the entire journey of that meet than we do uh, for a student yeah. who's come out of K-12 uh, and coming into the college system. Next track on this mixtape is Dr. Chris Emden at 2019's CS for All Teacher Summit. Don't forget all of the links to the full episodes will be in today's show notes. And Nip had this quote, well, he said it, I don't know if it was attributed originally to him. If you look at the people in your circle and you don't get inspired, then you don't have a circle, you have a cage. Now, I want to talk about the concept of circle, because y'all cited the work that I do around cogenerative dialogues and conversation, which gets lambasted in traditional academic communities as though dialogue is not pedagogy. You know, people miss, I ain't gonna even go there. Like cats don't get the value of engaging with the participant about their experiences, about the learning experience. Like, why would you ask the kids what they think of your instruction? Um, cause you teaching them. But anyway, this idea of a circle, this idea of a circle is at the anchor of any progressive pedagogy where there is a, there's an absence of divides and a, a shared understanding. And so if, the, if you look at the people in your circle and you don't get inspired, you don't have a circle. But the circle is who the young folks are surrounded with. In this world, you are the people who shape the circle. Y'all with me? So if the young person is in the circle and you are the adults are the ones who are constructing the circle, if they look in the circle, which is you and are not inspired, they, like, it's not like they're friends. I, wanna, I want us to make this personal. It, like the circle's not their friends. Yeah, there's an aspect of that that's that. I'm talking about intellectually and academically. You are their circle. So if they look at you and don't get inspired, they have a cage. Are y'all with me? Yeah. And, and we're going to talk about the concept of a digital cage in a little bit. But if you don't inspire them, now the question is this, how the heck do I inspire them? By your presence. By your acceptance of your learning of the process with them. Look, where Linda at? Did she, she bounce already? Like, this, 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 this recognition of... It's all right. It ain't no shade. She seen me this week already. She good? But, but it's idea. Like, you inspire somebody by modeling for them that it's a shared challenge. No one is inspired by somebody who ain't got no struggle. 
I could admire. Listen, you, nah, I'm, I'm in, you know, there's a, there's a variance between admiration and inspiration. If you see somebody that got something like, man, I admire that person. They, it's nice that they have that. I could commend you. I could admire your end goal, but I'm not inspired by you. If you demonstrate the end goal, like I know computer science, I'm here. They're like, oh, that's nice. It would be, it'll be cute to be you, but, but, they're, not, but they're, not, they're not invested. So are you, are you teaching for admiration or for inspiration? You see what I'm saying? Now, if you're teaching for inspiration, you got to have a story to tell, like Biggie. That's a whole other reference. If you ain't got no story to tell, there's no, there's no space for the inspiration. Now, the story to tell around CS is a story to tell around your challenges in understanding the landscape of CS. Like, nobody, look, this is a field, we don't need no experts. I know we got some engineering folks in here, some coding folks in here. We don't need your, we don't need your expertise for the inspiration component. For the inspiration component, I need the articulation of the struggle in amassing the knowledge. Who, who's with me? Like, I'm sitting there with the kids, and we're taking apart the joint together. By the way, because we talk about building, like Nipsey built. If you ain't got no building of something, a construction of something, you ain't got no curriculum. And I'm sitting there with you like, dang, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I can't figure this out. And the kids are going to look at you like, what? You're the teacher you're supposed to know. <laughs> and then you look at them right back like, nah, bro, we figuring this out together. Right? And then you, then, you, then, you, then you overcome the challenge together. I would even argue that sometimes you act like you don't know. Y'all don't even understand this pedagogy work. Sometimes I might, I might table my knowledge and perform my lack of it to model with the young folks that we overcome the struggle together. And now, they, now they're about to give up. And then they see you looking like you're about to give up. Then you take a walk around the classroom. And then you come back, and so, and then you go again, and they're looking at you like, man, I am inspired. Like, it, so now you model the resilience necessary for this area of work. Y'all with me? And that's for the computational aspect, that's for the building aspect as well. But that's core pedagogy, especially in the hood. When we talk about equity, let me, let me take that back. It ain't like the schools haven't taught the grit. I'm saying the school or the kids, or the kids lack the grit is that the kids have not had the conditions within schools to activate the existing grit. And the activation of the existing grit comes from a modeling of how to do it and a recognition of their goals. You see, you see how this comes full circle, y'all? Who are you going to be in that circle? Some hero to be admired? Or a pedagogue to inspire? And if you... And you, could, and you my man says both. You could do and or both. Next slide, next slide. But you also have to understand that the inability for you to inspire constructs a digital cage. And this is the part I want to hold on to. We can have a CS for all approach to instruction to meet the goals and needs of all young folks. And the tool could be emancipatory and the instruction could be one that is anti-liberatory. You can have a discourse of freedom and a pedagogy of mental and physical and emotional incarceration. And in and, and, and this technology world, we oftentimes think that it's the tool. Like the tool will get us over there. Nah, bro. The pedagogy gets you there. The tool is a tool. Otherwise, you reconstruct the things that exist in existing schools and create a digital cage. In the next track, Becca Lewis from Data and Society. And I talk more at the faculty symposium at Borough of Manhattan Community College about the report titled Media Manipulation and Disinformation Online from Data and Society. The title of the show was Media Manipulation and the Online Far Right. And 
links to that show to listen in full will be in the show notes. Um, 
but but Pepe actually started like not as a hate symbol at all. Pepe started as a cartoon character um, developed by an internet cartoonist, Matt Fury, and. Um, Pepe was just kind of this like loser frog who kind of was like okay with being a loser. Um, and he got embraced by these communities. Again, uh, anonymous image boards tend to be this space where like lots of internet geeks who maybe are a bit socially awkward in person, they'll, they'll gather and um, form this online subculture. And they embraced Pepe because they felt like, oh, we're all losers too, but we're gonna embrace being losers and Pepe represents that. Um, so they started, they several years ago took up Pepe as a mascot and uh, he became a meme. Um, now as, as happens with a lot of memes that start on 4chan, it ended up getting more and more mainstream. So um, if anyone's familiar with the, um, uh, the memes of Hack saying like, I can have cheeseburger and uh, the, um, you know, kind of instant cat memes. A lot of those started on 4chan. Well, the same thing happened with Pepe. Pepe. Can you can we can we yeah. pause and just uh, for a brief uh, public service announcement? Yeah. 4chan and 8chan. 4chan and 8chan. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I got ahead of myself. 4chan and 8chan are um, they're called image boards, which means essentially they're forums. Um, they're forums where people can have conversations with each other. Um, they're called image boards because in order to post to one of them. Um, in order to start a thread, you have to post an image. Uh, and then people can reply with comments to that image. Um, they allow you to post anonymously, which means a lot of people will end up kind of um, testing the limits of what they can say on those platforms. Um, often that ends up being racist and sexist content um, and other bigoted content. Um, but it actually started as kind of a, um, a takeoff on a, a Japanese image board that was called 2chan that was for anime. Um, so it kind of started from like anime communities, it grew out from there. Um, it became just both of both of these uh, hubs kind of became spots for uh, internet geeks, trolls, uh, people posting memes, um, all of these things. And then throughout the, the 2016 election, it kind of also became this hub for conspiracy theories and, and to a certain extent, the alt-right. Yeah. Um, so really, it's kind of like a, um, a rat's nest of the worst internet content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I, is it safe? Um, you tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, I am, but <laughs> tell me if they're wrong. If they're the correct one. Um, you use the term internet geeks. Um, yeah. And geek, I think, in this context is, a, is sort of, uh, is both a term uh, of, uh, sort of empowerment in this context. It's sort of a stepping stone for mm -hmm. like-minded uh, young people using the internet in this way, not um, derogatory. Exactly. This is generally it would be people who are self uh, self-identified geeks. Right. right. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, same with um, gamers. There's there's uh, a certain kind of gamer that um, you know in recent years actually after this incident called Gamergate came to be known as a Gamergator, but it's a kind of like geeky, young, generally considered to be like a young white man, that's the stereotype, um, who is socially awkward and likes kind of retreating into video games. Well, everything I'm saying sounds like a little bit derogatory, but this has become like this identity that's a badge of honor for these people. They're not like your typical masculine, uh, you know, playing sports or on the, the varsity yeah, football yeah. team, but 
they they've kind of embraced this different kind of masculinity that's like uh, you know we're the we're the yeah. weak men in the, of the world. Yeah. yeah. I d when you were saying uh, young white male retreating mm -hmm. into video games, I noticed you sort of looked over in my direction, <laughs> and it felt it felt awkward. Um, Purely coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> so so decades from now, really mm -hmm. on on Pepe the Frog, uh, let's envision ourselves two decades from now, right? Yeah. We're thinking about. Pepe the Frog, who um, really rose to call it internet fame, uh, yeah. but, but really broader fame during the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, what do you think two decades from now Pepe characterizes and, and uh, that, that we will have learned from Pepe? Well, so, so just to finish the, the tale of Pepe's twisted journey, yeah. um, once, once Pepe became really uh, popular in the mainstream, like, Katy Perry tweeted out a Pepe meme at one time, um, and I think Rihanna may have. Uh, you know, celebrities were tweeting it out. Everyone was using it, um, and so 4chan felt and 4chan and 8chan felt possessive, right? They're, they wanted to put boundaries on this internet community that they had, and so they said, you know, let's try to make Pepe affiliated with the the most awful things we can think of. Mm. So they started that. It actually Pepe became this hate symbol through kind of joking among people on 4chan and 8chan who said, let's make this content as racist as we can, as sexist as we can. There was a lot of just like gross, um, uh, kind of like base level humor, even you know, aside from, from racism and sexism. Um, but what happens on the internet, uh, when you're being uh, jokingly racist and sexist, a lot of times uh, people, surprise, surprise, read it as actual racism and sexism. Um, so you had a couple of things happening with Pepe. Um, first of all, you had actual white nationalists and white supremacists who decided they loved Pepe and they embraced him uh, as this symbol. Um, and on the flip side, you had um, you know democratic politicians and people seeing this you know <coughs> bigoted uh, meme getting spread around, and they were worried about it. So here's this photo of Hillary Clinton. Um, some people might be aware, partway through the campaign. Um, some people on Hillary Clinton's campaign um, released this uh, uh, explainer about Pepe the Frog and what he right. meant. Um, 4chan and, and 8chan, the people on there, were thrilled because to them, to be hated by the mainstream is to have made it. Yeah. Um, and in that moment, right, it was actually, uh, you know, um, the Hillary campaign was attempting to make people aware of, of the frog so they could counter you know, the ideas behind it, but it, in these moments it actually can have the unintended effect of just kind of being PR, like free PR yeah. for, for Pepe. Yeah. Um, so to get back to your question about uh, 20 years from what now. What have we learned <laughs> um, 20 years from now? You know, I, I don't think that Pepe is going to be popular 20 years from now because they're already starting to be over him, right? People are aware of what Pepe is now. Um, uh, they're trying to move on to the next thing that they think is interesting and irreverent, but um, I think that a lot of what we were seeing here was kind of like um, a new coat of paint on very old ideas of racism and sexism. You can turn it into this uh, stupid green frog. You can, you know, call it the alt-right. You can change the terminology and the imagery. But if you're promoting the same ideas, we need to be wary of that. Yeah. Um, so I think... Uh, the, the lessons that I think we should learn from that are about like resisting any any level of novelty attached mm. to these ideas. Mm. Is it fair is it fair to say too uh, that communication uh, among
For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. 